Welcome. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is John Hamry, and uh, I'm the president here at CSIS and delighted to welcome all of you. Uh, when we have public events like this, we always begin with a, a little bit of a safety announcement. I'm responsible for your safety, so please follow my instructions. There are some very senior military officers here who are more competent than I am, but I'm in charge, okay? So... All right, so if we have to uh, quickly leave, we'll go right through this door, the stairs that take us down to the ground level. We'll go around the back, and we'll meet over in the courtyard of National Geographic. I'll get ice cream, and we will sing a chant and song of praise for our survival, okay? But don't worry about it. We're, we're, but do follow my instructions if we have to do anything. Uh, <clears throat> I'm uh, uh, very pleased to... Welcome all of you here, and especially my Norwegian friends. I'm the highest-ranking Norwegian think tank president in America. I want you to know that. That's a very small constituency, but I draw great pride in my ties to the homeland and uh, delighted to welcome these good friends back. Um, they had the foresight, uh, well, I think over a year ago, to start envisioning you know, a serious a serious book about the, you know, what what is collective self-defense mean in this new era, um, and I'm glad they did uh, because this is something that that frankly we've all been a bit caught off balance to realize the the dynamic that's been unfolding for several years. Uh, you've been closer to it, and you know, you've seen this, and, but you were wanting to bring this to our attention. You know, and, and, I, and I, we're going to talk about collective self-defense. These guys are gonna talk about this today. Um, but let's just t step back uh, a second. You know, NATO is really, yes, it is the most successful military alliance in history, but ultimately it's a political alliance. It's, um, it was what we committed to do to help shape the political evolution of Europe you know, so that it would be free and whole and not subject to the intimidation of a threatening external power. And that was back in 1947, 48, 49, you know, when we started to realize we were going to need to do that. Um, about a month ago in Munich, the Russian foreign minister proudly said the, uh, the liberal international order is over. That was quite a statement. And you would have to uh, acknowledge that the, the forces of authoritarianism are on the rise. You know, and they, frankly, are more successful in mastering social media than our democracies. We're struggling. I think we have to uh, go back to the foundation. We have to think about this all over again. What is the nature of the world we choose to create? What role do we play in it? And what role does a military alliance play in that? I think it's very much the way it was back in 1949. It is, we have to bind ourselves together to have an affordable way to deflect the intimidation that is coming at us from a very willful adversary. Um, I, have, I don't doubt that we can prevail, but we have to rediscover this foundation of why we are allies and why we are bound together in a common purpose. That's the backdrop to what you've been doing. I, I, it has to be a broader debate than just among um, a military community. 
it has to be a broad debate within American society and, frankly, within Europe. And I, I, I say to my friends, I, I'm not terribly worried about our success in standing up to this pressure. I'm terrified that Europe could fall apart in the next year, the European Union. That is the biggest security risk America faces right now, in my view. Uh, I hope we talk a little bit about that today, because it's, we have to find a new way. NATO no longer can just be America's way of dominating the security landscape of Europe. We have to start thinking about this in a different way. And that we Americans need to, and we're going to need to have your helping us think that through. We're going to start on that today. I'm so grateful to have you here. Rolf, I think you're going to get this started for real. Is that right? Well, you get rid of me, and now you get Rolf. Please come on up here, Rolf. We look forward to hearing you. Thank you all. Thanks for coming, everybody. Thank you, John. It's uh, good to be back at uh, CSIS. We have a long and strong relationship, both as uh, countries, as, an, as institutions, and uh, we are going to continue that cooperation, of course. Ladies and gentlemen, the Western liberal societies and the international order are under pressure from uh, external and external forces and also weakened by crises of confidence and uh, self-doubt. In Europe, a key part of this picture is that uh, Russia is uh, challenging the collective defense of NATO and the political uh, cohesion of Western uh, democracy, as uh, John mentioned. Uh, and uh, I would say that U.S. priorities in the years to come might become decisive in our dealing with Russia, but also the related question whether NATO Europe is prepared to shoulder a larger share of the costs. That's a factor of the situation now, which is much more clear than it used to be from, I would say, from 1953 onwards, when this was raised for the first time. Uh, one could argue that the future does not belong to Russia. After nearly a decade of growth, Russia's economic and political system is about to descend into Soviet-era stagnation. And yet, Russia has managed to rebuild considerable military capabilities which constitute a challenge to the defense of Europe in forward areas, as you know, and more broadly by establishing anti-access capabilities that could reach all of Europe and into the North Atlantic. One part of the problem is that an arc of steel is uh, descending across Europe from the Arctic to the Mediterranean. A number of anti-access Bubbles, based on precision-guided uh, missiles, SS-400, Iskander, Caliber, KH-101, KH and so on and so forth. Another part of it, and a related part of it, is uh, Russia's bastion uh, defense in the north, which has been re-established after the turn of the century. Russia's strategic submarines in the Arctic are accorded very high priority in Russian thinking and strategy. And in a conflict, Russia will make every effort to defend them by defend, uh, establishing uh, um, sea control in northern waters 
and sea denial further to the south and west down to the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap. And this combination of anti-axis bubbles across Europe and the bastion defense from the north stands out, as we emphasize in the report, as a strategic challenge to transatlantic defense as it threatens the link between North America and Europe. As I indicated, that is a key message of, of our publication. Which brings us to the crucial question, how can NATO respond to a resurgent Russia? Well, the White Hole paper we have written together makes it clear that NATO has taken the first step towards re-establishing deterrence and defense through forward bases on the eastern flank, and that it is now time for the Alliance to adapt a more comprehensive approach by addressing the maritime domain, notably the North Atlantic. So, ladies and gentlemen, with this uh, setting in mind, I'm looking forward to the presentations through the lenses of three countries, the United States, United Kingdom, and Norway. These countries, I would argue, with the support from the rest of the northern region, should take the lead to ensure that NATO and its partners devote sufficient resources to strategic uh, di direction North Atlantic. So thank you very much. All right, well, thank you, um, uh, everyone, again, for coming today. And uh, thanks to Dr. Hamry um, for his introductory remarks, and also thanks to Professor uh, Rolf Tamnes for, for his, uh, his introductory comments um, as well. Um, the professor is a mainstay and lighthouse uh, for the uh, transatlantic relationship, and uh, really delighted uh, to, to have him here. We've got a panel with deep knowledge uh, and a lot of expertise uh, in these issues. So, um, and they've been talking a lot about uh, this book project in recent days. So my job um, is to get out of their way. But first, I'll tell you who I am. I'm Jeff Rathke. I'm the uh, senior fellow here uh, in the Europe program. Uh, and uh, I work uh, uh, for and with Heather uh, on uh, a lot of issues, including European defense and security and, and NATO. So let me introduce our panelists, and uh, they will get started. Uh, and then I'll come back in with, uh, with a, few, a few questions and uh, some uh, and steer discussion. And then we'll bring you into, into this uh, discussion as well. And we look forward to your, uh, your questions uh, also. So uh, I'm going to go in reverse order in which uh, folks will speak. So I'll start in the, just to two people to my right with Dr. Peter Roberts. Um, who is the Director of Military Sciences at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI. Um, but also, uh, he had a distinguished career, career in the Royal Navy uh, before joining RUSI, uh, and so we're uh, very happy to have him uh, with us here today. And to my right uh, is Sven Efjestad, uh, who has been with the Norwegian Ministry of Defense for about 36 years, if I added that up uh, correctly. Um, certainly well known here in Washington as well uh, as uh, across Europe. He's the, he was the Director General uh, for Security Policy in the Norwegian Ministry of Defense for about 20 years, which is a pretty remarkable achievement. And now he is the Policy Director uh, at the MOD, and uh, also welcome. 
And, uh, and then uh, all the way at the right, Heather Conley, whom I'm sure uh, most of you know, a senior vice president here at CSIS for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic. Uh, she has been running our Europe program for eight years. Uh, and uh, prior to that, held uh, an executive position at the American Red Cross and um, was a deputy assistant secretary of state uh, and worked on central as well as northern European issues. Um, so uh, with that, I think I'll turn to Heather and ask her to get us uh, started, and uh, we'll work, uh, uh, work our way through. Well, Heather, please. Thank you, Jeff. Usually I'm in that seat, and it's so nice <laughs> to be introduced. And thank you all for being here. I, I'm going to first say that you're staring at four jet-lagged people. Uh, three, minus Jeff. three. Well, and Rolf, Rolf <laughs> ah, is in okay. the jet-lag category. <laughs> We've been on a bit of a road show. Uh, we started this road show, what day is it today? Thursday, on Monday in London at Rusi. And we, were in, we just left Oslo yesterday afternoon uh, doing a seminar at the Institute for Defense Studies. And so the road show now uh, comes to Washington. We're going to get the t-shirts uh, with the city tour uh, on there. But it's been great fun, this project, and working with uh, really wonderful partners. I have to say, as think tanks, we do research papers, we do work, but when you can truly make it a transatlantic project and you can uh, think uh, in your national perspective but think jointly, it's been a great project and, and it, it's been a great deal of fun. Uh, we have this, we actually originally were thinking that because we've all heard each other's spiels now for four running days that we give each other's talks, but we're not going to do that. We'll stick to the national perspective. But I wanted to pull on uh, Dr. Hermie's comments, and we, we co-authored our project about rediscovering our roots, or as I like to say, it's time to put the North Atlantic back into NATO, um, and to think about uh, why the North Atlantic is strategic in the first place. And so as I, not to the folks in this room who are very well aware, but for so many uh, Americans, we've lost our memory of the Cold War. And some of that's very purposeful. We don't want to go back to those days. But we've lost our memory. And there's a generation of policymakers that do not know what a reforger exercise is. They do not know what the GIUK gap is. They don't understand what active measures are or compromat. And they don't realize that North Atlantic uh, is the essential fabric of the NATO alliance back in 1949. So in part, what our chapter was designed to do in this book is to refresh that memory. What the US, uh, why the North Atlantic was so important, why the U.S. had placed its forces both in Europe and specifically in Northern Europe, and what we had taken out of Northern Europe, and what we find ourselves today putting back in Northern Europe because of the uh, emergence of, of, of a Russian threat. So it's in this context, we probably spend too much time telling you about the past, but it's exactly the past that we haven't quite recalled why we were there and then to understand in a modern context. So our recommendations at the end of our chapter, I want to spend just a few moments uh, and then uh, can, we can turn to uh, other perspectives. So uh, last July at the NATO Warsaw Summit, the Alliance put forward the Enhanced Forward Presence, which is 
uh, NATO's enhancement of its eastern flank for NATO battalions in the Baltic states and in Poland. And just last month at the NATO Defense Ministerial, it was announced uh, the tailored force presence, which is a, a, a more, uh, more modest uh, force presence for the Black Sea region. So what we're arguing in our chapter, it's now time for an enhanced northern presence to now uh, return NATO more strategically to the North Atlantic. We do this in thinking about what are the capabilities that already exist in the region and turning to what we call a North Atlantic quad formation of bringing uh, four countries together, at least initially, the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, Norway, and Denmark, but potentially looking at France as a partner because of uh, their nuclear submarine capability and bringing in others. But we have the core capabilities, enhanced maritime patrol aircraft, the rotation of the, the P-8s uh, to Keflavik. We have both the UK and Norway purchasing P-8s as well. We have. Uh, we need to look at the enhanced uh, integrated air and defense picture, um, and uh, we spend a little bit of time, as well as my other colleagues. We need to enhance um, Marcom uh, in Northwood uh, and give much more uh, command and control to the North Atlantic. It's refocusing NATO in this area, not necessarily alliance-wide, beginning with those allies that have capabilities, have the regional expertise, and then grow it outward. The last final thought I'll offer is what makes this construct new for us? And this comes through, I think, in the entire book. It's not new, but it's returning to us in new ways, and that's the Arctic. For far too long, NATO silos its view. It looks at the Baltic Sea. It looks at the Black Sea. It may look at the North Atlantic. What we need to start understanding is the, the, the aperture of this theater is much greater for Russia. It looks at how activities in the Kola Peninsula, the Northern Fleet, are interacting on a wider basis with the Baltic uh, Fleet, uh, looking at ways uh, of engagement in the North Atlantic. We have to start looking at that as well. And NATO must begin to recognize Russia's enhanced military posture in the Arctic and how that works systematically. So this is something that we need to integrate. It's time to get the North Atlantic Council much more engaged in a discussion, uh, providing a, a much greater uh, readiness for the North Atlantic. So it's been uh, great fun to be part of this book. And we hope this stimulates a much greater discussion and, most importantly, enhanced capabilities in the North Atlantic. So with that, I'll pass it over. Wonderful. Thank you, Heather. Um, and uh, now I'd like to turn uh, to, to Sven Efjestad uh, for, uh, for his uh, perspective. Uh, please. Thank you very much, Jeff. <clears throat> it's good to be back here at CSIS. Um, my perspective in this book is very much the coordination of the defense and deterrent posture at sea and, and the adjacent territorial areas. Uh, much of the book is focused on the defense of the North Atlantic um, Ocean, but it also needs to be seen in the context of the adjacent land territories. So I will try to, to sum up uh, the gist of what I describe in, in seven points. My first point is that it is necessary now to review NATO's maritime strategy from 2011. The security challenges that NATO face today are very different and much more serious than we foresaw six years ago. 
The new maritime strategy should reflect the basic importance of NATO's supremacy in the North Atlantic. And to quote General Breedlove in this book, the North Atlantic is NATO's lifeblood. It is the transatlantic link. Therefore, it is also basic for collective defense in other areas of Europe. My second point is that we need to identify a level of ambition in the maritime area. We must be able to establish sea control on relatively short notice, at least temporarily, temporarily so that we can ensure the flow of reinforcements and resupply from America to Europe. The third point is that our maritime strategy must be forward-looking and take into account emerging technologies and hybrid threats. This is described very, very well by Admiral Stavridis in his chapter, but it is a point which needs to be incorporated also in the maritime strategy. Drones and new unmanned platforms can in the future pose tremendous threats to our forces as well as to maritime infrastructure, such as undersea cables, for electricity or data or oil and gas pipes. I also believe we need a new policy for training and exercises. We need to prepare our forces for joint and combined operations in the North Atlantic area. And I think uh, in addition to US, UK, Norway, we also need to engage France, Netherlands, Denmark, and Germany in this effort. It needs to be a truly combined joint effort. But this means preparations for high-intensity warfare in the most difficult circumstances, where our vulnerabilities and weaknesses will be exploited to the maximum. The lessons learned must be incorporated into future plans and operations at every level. And I think it is important that this also goes into the NATO leadership so it qualifies NATO for that kind of operations. We need to improve our contingency planning. I believe very much of what we have done so far, which have been useful and right in the Baltic Sea area, in the Black Sea area, has been very reactive in a way. We put forward smaller force contingents to kind of block any uh, advances in that region. I think we should look again at some kind of rapid reinforcement plan for all of Europe. And that would put into context and would reveal what kind of options we would have in a critical situation. My sixth point has to do with NATO's command structure. It has been reformed several times, also after the end of the Cold War. And I think there is agreement now that the current structure is only partially fit for purpose. And it does not reflect the current security challenges we face. This is particularly true for the North Atlantic and Northern flank. I believe there is a strong case for the establishment of a joint command responsible for this area, a command that can direct activities in peacetime, do the necessary contingency planning, and form the headquarters for operations in crisis and war. A joint command can draw on resources from the force structure, and in my view, it should be linked to national headquarters in the area. And I think there are many well-qualified headquarters in the area. By double-hatting some of these, NATO will have much better capacity and better situational awareness. Such arrangements will also help provide a whole-of-government approach to crisis management 
in the countries adjacent to the North Atlantic. In the case of Norway, we need to be to coordinate our military planning with the total defense effort. Depending on circumstances, bilateral arrangements could be implemented to tackle a crisis. All NATO countries have a commitment to assist both collectively and individually in a crisis. This is what makes NATO so unique and so robust. The defense of Norway depends on allied strength and unity of efforts in the North Atlantic. This transatlantic link is also decisive for the credibility of allied defense and deterrence in other areas. Therefore, we must put in place a permanent command arrangement for this area. I believe it can be done by creating a network between existing NATO structures, national headquarters, and NATO force structures. This would not be costly, and it would add the most competent and well-qualified officers in the region to work for NATO in crisis and war. I believe we can restore our credible collective defense without creating unnecessary tension with Russia. There is, in my opinion, no need for offensive large deployments close to the strategic Russian bases in the north. It will be more difficult to maintain stability if we are not able to show our preparedness for collective defense. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sven. Um, so, uh, Dr. Roberts will uh, let you bat cleanup today. Um, uh, and uh, so with that, uh, the, the, the floor is yours, uh, Peter. Th thanks very much. I think what's really lovely about this book is when you, is when you get someone like um, General Breedlove writing the introduction. You have Stavridis finishing it, you know, very powerful individuals. And there's this great sentence by um, General Breedlove who, who says in his, uh, in his foreword that we must have command of the sea as if this is something that, that has gone, it's past us, it's, it's disappeared. This, this sort of resonates with me as a mariner because you know, there's this great British belief that, that the North Atlantic has always been uncontested. It's been ours. We've always had it, owned it. It's been there for trade to deliver the $4 trillion worth of goods and services that cross the North Atlantic every year. There's this idea that, that actually it will always be there that there is no doubt that it will ever be there. And I think that idea is, is somehow um, now being challenged. And if you go back right the way through to the 1980s, while the North Atlantic was challenged, it wasn't challenged in a particularly viable way. Uh, but nonetheless, there was contest there. there. There was always something going on that, that, that pushed and that European nations always responded to since the 14th, 15th century. Uh, that they had built capabilities that were capable of responding to whatever challenges uh, that emerged. But in the 1980s, you saw a real difference in Europe. Um, when they looked at Russia and they saw uh, the problems with scale and mass that they were facing and decided that the response to that with technology came through precision-guided munitions, tactical nuclear warheads, strategic airlift, which sort of marginalized the North Atlantic and the sort of maritime perspective of the alliance. And the UK, much like quite a lot of Europe, and indeed the alliance, shifted to a very continentalist perspective that saw the great battles and the, and the decisive ground uh, not being in the North Atlantic, but moving very surely over to land. And those investments decisions moved that way. And you get to the sort of 1990s where all these decisions for major platforms in naval procurement programs move from command of the sea, control of the sea, towards contributing to a land campaign, 
In doctrinal terms, you know, military theory terms, this moves from the, you know, the great American theorist Alfred Ter Mahan, who talked about you know, the, the capabilities that were needed for, to drive the contest at sea and to win and to control, to uh, Julian Corbett, who thought this was the decisive acts only happened on the land and the sea was there merely to manage them. And, and this great divide in the 90s saw three very divergent perspectives coming. The European one, as I've said, which talked much more about uh, the land borders, the land fight. The Russian perspective, which, you know, since the 90s and, and thereon saw this, what they felt, still feel, as the NATO encroachment on their ground, as, as pushing up against their sovereign space, the removal of the grey zone, the buffer zone, the border areas, this constant move towards them in, in what they perceive from Moscow's eyes is quite a threatening way. And a US perspective, which, you know, alone in NATO um, continues with a deeply maritime perspective, albeit focused to China rather than perhaps to the North Atlantic and, and to Europe now. And this is um, really interesting because when you look at it through the Russian perspective, they understand that they cannot challenge in terms of mass or scale. But they can challenge and unpick politically through that military seat, through the military instrument, much as they did in Crimea and Ukraine, that they can use uh, an asymmetric approach, an approach that is unable to be mirrored, that plays on the weaknesses of the alliance, both politically and militarily. And whether this is in cyber or in hybrid warfare, in militarizing the Arctic, which has become a very real problem, or indeed in the militarization of the Atlantic, particularly in the sea domain. And we're often asked over the past four days whether this is in fact a return to the 1980s. And many people like to sort of talk about this in terms of, you know, this is a return to Russian active measures, to special measures, to subdiffusion, subversion, to espionage. Um, and in many ways for the Russians it is, I think. But I don't think it is necessarily from a, uh, from a US or from a European perspective. And the European perspective is very interesting because it is vastly constrained by resources. And it looks at this problem in security through a purely financial and economic lens. Uh, and this, I think, is a real problem which we've got to break down these barriers for. Because within NATO, contrasting it with the 1980s, now there is a paucity of doctrine and concepts of fighting at sea. Particularly in deep water and against a near-peer adversary who has, critically, a, a significant political will and a higher risk appetite than exists in Europe. This is where the difference is being made. Yes, the Yasen, the Bore class, are superb submarines. Uh, the, their weapon systems are impressive. Uh, and they are certainly operating with world-class capabilities, but not at a scale what they are willing to do is employ their military force in a very different way, in a way that really stretches our own political imagination in Europe. And indeed, on our military uh, application in Europe, we, we seem to be unable to match them. Uh, and this is uh, a real challenge, because Moscow is operating in the military space with different moral, legal, and ethical boundaries and frameworks than we are in the West. And this places a, a, a significant challenge. It's a challenge that needs confronting, though, uh, and one could look at this and slightly worry that Western military and political leaders are seduced by the idea that innovation will provide a silver bullet, or that information will provide you with a competitive edge, when there is very little evidence that says that this can actually deliver you with something that will turn the tables. 
The reality from history is that, is that conflict, particularly in the North Atlantic, is a distinctly human endeavor. When you're hunting submarines in the North Atlantic, you're not necessarily asking for the latest, greatest, additional piece of software. What you're really asking for is information on the captain of the boat that you're trying to hunt, about his personality. It's a distinctly human game, and it's a, a real challenge in a distinctly different way than it's been before, but it's certainly a challenge that's worth confronting. Thank you. Well, thank you very much to uh, all of our panelists for really wonderful, uh, thought-provoking uh, contributions. And what I'll do here is uh, a few directed questions uh, to individuals on the panel, but certainly others. Feel free to chime in uh, because I'm sure you'll have an opinion about some of them, uh, and I don't want to uh, don't want to limit you. Um, but maybe I'll start with Heather um, at the uh, and and ask. You talked about the idea of a quad or perhaps a quint uh, approach to the North Atlantic. Uh, I'd be curious, do you, where do you see a role for, if at all, for NATO partners? And implicit in the question, I guess, is you know, do you see the, uh, the Baltic uh, and how do you see the connection of the Baltic Sea region uh, with the North Atlantic? On the one hand, it plays an important role uh, the sea lines of communication for reinforcement right. um, of the enhanced forward presence, uh, of course, depends on the North Atlantic. Um, but I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts uh, uh, further than that. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. And, and I think as we've been having this discussion about what NATO members have the capabilities now or will very soon in the future to build this immediate uh, credible deterrence for the North. And, and we offered our recommendation not without understanding the controversy in some ways that we were stepping into. Because the next question is, you were talking about regionalization of NATO. You were talking about creating uh, you know, a few members to defend a particular area. And that just eats away, erodes at the unity of NATO. And it's an absolute fair and important point. I think we were viewing this, quite frankly, through simply a pragmatic lens. Uh, we need those capabilities now. The countries that obviously uh, have the capabilities have the regional focus. We need to begin now and build and bring other uh, NATO members and engage them in growing those capabilities. But we have to start somewhere. And your question about the partners is very interesting because this is also, I think, in some ways, you sort of the the, the theology and then the pragmatism. Uh, we have seen where uh, non-NATO members like Sweden and Finland are increasingly being incorporated into our exercises and our training in the Baltic Sea, even involving non-NATO members in Icelandic air policing. In some ways, we're talking about let's get the capabilities, let's grow uh, the, the, the effort and then be a little less uh, focused on what I call the, the theology. So I think this is absolutely a place potentially for partners, although I think, again, Sweden and Finland, for obvious reasons, will stay a little closer to home in, in, in the Baltic Sea. But they, too, are absolutely aware of Russia's military presence in the Kola Peninsula and the Arctic. So there is a, a, a broader role to play. The one thing that I'm going to be watching, sort of a preview of coming attractions, I guess, uh, for the 
for the CSIS Europe program, I'm going to be very focused on watching Zapod 2017 this fall, which is the uh, every uh, four years, uh, Russia rotates uh, its annual exercises through its four military districts. This year it's back to the Western Military District. We learned a lot in Zapod 2013, quite frankly, because it, it I think it demonstrated to us uh, the integration, um, that we saw activities on the Kola Peninsula and the Northern Fleet, we saw the activities in the Baltic it was a land, sea, air component. Won't we that be interesting to watch that this fall with additional uh, Russian uh, forces placed in the Arctic, uh, more practice, more rapid mobilization, how they combine land, sea, and air. That will again be instructive, uh, I think, for the, the North Atlantic, how they're looking at it, how they're doing Bastion, and then how we, NATO, would require rapid force uh, reinforcement in case of crisis. So these are all, I think, important issues. They're integrated, but they are certainly not without controversy. So um, thank you. And uh, so maybe to pick up on one uh, element Heather mentioned, which is uh, the argument about regionalization um, within NATO. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to hear, uh, you know, hear your perspective on that as well. Um, you know, how, how do you see, uh, you know, what are the keys to um, dealing, mitigating any, uh, uh, any of the risks that uh, there might be? Uh, or do you see a risk there? Um, I believe that NATO at 29 needs to work in a different way than it did when we were 15, actually, in the integrated structure. And uh, very many of the members are small, very limited capabilities, also, uh, uh, also limited officer score. Mm -hmm. I believe that um, we need to develop a system where the general policies are developed at 29, but implementation, execution, could well be done in a more regional setting amongst those who are directly involved and directly affected. Um, this, is happen, this is happening also as we speak because I think the majority of bigger exercises in Europe today are arranged by invitation from single countries or groups of countries. The Baltops operation, for example, in the Baltic Sea, is not a NATO-led operation. The same applies to cold response in Norway or to Arctic Challenge. So this is happening uh, anyway. Uh, and I think if we allow this to happen inside NATO, then NATO would be coupled on this process, which I think is a positive one. Mm -hmm. But, of course, we have to be careful. We must not allow this to develop into... Uh, cracks and divisions in the, in the alliance. And uh, that is quite a challenge now because the security challenges from the south are very different in character from those that we see in the north and the east. Mm -hmm. And um, we also fully have to recognize the concerns in the south, but it has, they have to be dealt with in a different way than what we are doing in the north and, uh, and the east. Uh, one aspect that I'd like to add also is the aspect of vulnerability. For the last 20 years, we have not really invested in protecting our infrastructure. And with long-range, very precise weapons, which can be launched at uh, single, very little or no warning, we could be taken by surprise. And there is a danger that the force posture, perhaps on both sides, could be destabilizing in a sense that there's a big premium for those who act first. That is also a concern which I think we, we need to, 
take into account. Okay, thanks, uh, Sven. Um, Peter, the uh, the 2015 SDSR uh, in the United Kingdom went uh, a long way to reverse, uh, I, I think, uh, some trends uh, and to bolster uh, uh, British uh, capabilities. Um, of course, now we're in a uh, an age of Brexit and a lot of question about what that will mean. Um, on the one hand, for um, political focus uh, in the next couple of years, but also uh, what what global Britain uh, means um, in security and defense terms. So uh, I'd be curious where you see those trade-offs, um, especially as regards the North Atlantic versus power projection in uh, in other theaters and, and how those trade-offs will be weighed. Uh, I think... Uh, you know, these are questions that the British government is uh, is trying to get to grips with now. There's a very real feeling that there is a, an ambition and aspiration to have this global impact, to follow uh, the economics and to ensure that you know, Britain upholds those values that it, um, that, that it likes to talk so much about. Um, and there is a balance here. Um, the two new aircraft carriers, I think the first one, uh, Queen Elizabeth, its inaugural deployment will be to the South China Seas. Um, um, and I think this is a real sign that it sees, that Britain sees this area uh, as, as vitally important in terms of its interests and its values. But such an aircraft carrier, F-35 jets, are not necessarily suited for the challenge that there is in the North Atlantic. And I think this prioritisation of resources will be increasingly important. And within the current funded plan, uh, I think these are uh, manageable, provided that uh, there is an agreement that perhaps when uh, the British carrier sails into the South China Seas that there is uh, a sharing of force protection uh, capabilities that that are afforded to it in order to allow the new Type 26 anti-submarine hunting frigates to uh, work some of their magic in the North Atlantic and meet some of the challenges uh, uh, in the northern areas. And I think that's all fine, provided that the economic uh, conditions in the UK continue to be um, reasonably sound. Um, In the 2015 Defence Review, uh, Britain, um, or the government at the time, announced the purchase and procurement of five large projects, um, four of which uh, were... um, pretty much FMS cases out of the US. Uh, Since then, the pound has dropped in value by 20%, making those uh, much more expensive than they previously Mm -hmm. were. And so internally, there are having to be some trade-offs over what can be afforded. And these are really difficult. Um, But provided the economy keeps going the way it is, we're told by the um, Secretary of State for Defence that um, there are no problems that will continue. I think the real worry is... Uh, and it's raised by Malcolm Chalmers in his brilliant, um, brilliant chapter in this book, that if the British economy tanks, uh, that we will have to see um, a, a much more hard-headed approach to prioritisation. Uh, and herein lies one of the real problems, because the force structure that the UK has adopted uh, and is pushing towards for 2020 is not necessarily one that is best suited to deal with Russia in the North Atlantic and the Arctic. It is one that is uh, more ideally suited to expeditionary warfare uh, in the Mediterranean, the Gulf, uh, and elsewhere. So we will start to see that challenge really come home to Greece, and it very much depends on the political will and the prioritisation of defence over other departments. Mm -hmm. Terrific. 
Um, thank you. Uh, one question to all. Um, chime in as you, as you see fit. I mean, you, you talked about prioritization. That brings us also, I think, around uh, to the question of burden sharing. And uh, there's, been, uh, there's been a lot of uh, discussion. I think everybody's uh, familiar with the 2% and 20% uh, targets uh, that NATO leaders have agreed to. Um, there's not really uh, any politically political-level endorsed output uh, measurement. Um, uh, that's a problem, I know, for some, for some nations where, as they try to consider increasing um, their defense contributions. But um, you know, does, does NATO also need a more defined uh, output, uh, especially with regard to the North Atlantic, um, to go along with this, uh, this increased political focus? Well, I'll, I'll start just to almost focus a bit on the, the prioritization. I, we got this question quite a bit uh, in London and, and Oslo. What is the prioritization of the United States uh, when it comes to talking about naval operations? The North Atlantic is not top of the list. Uh, it is, you know, obviously focused on the Asia Pacific region, but that is uh, our, our greatest priority and resources. Uh, stretched as they are, that's where that's going to go, and we're going to have to try to cobble together something for the North Atlantic. I think our challenge, and this does sort of get to the, whether it's 2%, 2% or how countries uh, make the choices, the difficult choices of what gets funded and what doesn't, the United States, I think, has this unique challenge at the moment. During the Cold War, we, we knew our priorities. Uh, it was focused on Europe, clearly, and had uh, other regional hotspots that were addressed. Today, uh, we have regional challenges in the Asia-Pacific theater, in the Middle East, now in Europe. How do you, it's not going to be a one, two, three. It's going to be an all of the above. How do you sustain that budgetary prioritization? How do you uh, think about uh, capabilities that can be used not only in the Mediterranean uh, but in the north how do you keep that sort of that versatility these are all huge challenges and I think we're just not wrestling well with them we like to define our priorities the enemy has a vote and I think sometimes we uh, fail to be able to do that quintessential walk and chew gum as we're looking at these uh, various theaters. Senator Peter any uh, further thoughts on that topic? Well, I, I think there is a, a shortage of resources for mm -hmm. the North Atlantic and for defense of the adjacent territories. Um, how much is difficult to say. I mean, if we are able to draw the resources together for the countries, UK, France, Germany, Netherlands, Norway, mm -hmm. um, we might come a long way. Uh, I would like to see a more comprehensive planning effort operational planning effort, contingency planning effort, and also testing of these in exercises. I think that could reveal better what kind of shortages we have and which dilemma we would have to face in a crisis. We think it is very unrealistic to think about a crisis in the North Atlantic or in the High North without a simultaneous crisis, for example, in the Baltic Sea. So how would we deal with contingencies which arise at the same time. We, we need to think this through in a better way. And I think perhaps that could also help us uh, with priorities. But um, I fear that we have a, quite a shortage of, um, of resources. And I believe that we are very vulnerable to because lack of survivability for our uh, infrastructure in the area. All right. Thank you.
Um, uh, I think there's a really interesting question here about um, synchronization and, and what can be used in terms of military assets. If you look at, you know, across NATO, we're not short of assets, but we are short of blue water, deep submarine hunting, SW assets that can operate for long periods of time in some pretty hostile uh, environment. Anyone who's sailed in the North Atlantic knows it's, you know, it's no walk in the park. It's not a nice flat mill pond. It, it's a very, very testing environment. Um, but, there are, uh, but there are only limited assets, therefore, that you want to use there. And prioritizing those assets to put them there um, is something that can be done by relatively um, a select group of nations and can derive benefit. And in terms of the US, this is very interesting because if you're looking at submarine hunting skills, um, there is going to be a huge requirement to develop those skills at scale. China's plan for 111 submarines across its fleet by um, uh, 2045 or so, um, 2050, you're going to have a huge requirement for ASW that is becoming more tactically aware. Being able to develop tactics for that with a mature alliance in the North Atlantic against a very sophisticated uh, adversary is going to reap huge benefits for the United States in both oceans for the US Navy in future. There is an ability to train and develop those tactics in the North Atlantic now and then use them to transfer into the Pacific as required uh, over the next coming decades. So there is a real opportunity. But the burden sharing here is, is sort of intellectual. And it's that intellectual effort, that sharing of knowledge, of tactics, of experience between uh, the navies that are operating in the North Atlantic that will reap rewards. And that intellectual effort is hugely fungible. Uh, and I think that's where, as, as Admiral Stavridis ra uh, raises as one of his recommendations in his chapter, is the investment in the intellectual capital between those states that are operating and those navies that are operating in the North Atlantic is a real area of opportunity. Thank you. Well, I'd like to turn to the audience now and uh, ask uh, for, for questions from you. Um, and we have microphones in the back, so if you put your, uh, put your hand up, uh, we'll run a microphone uh, down to you. Uh, I would just ask that uh, you give us your name and your affiliation and uh, give us a, uh, a, fair, a clearly focused question, um, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll take uh, contributions as well. And while people put their thoughts uh, together, ah, yes, I see one, uh, I see one hand. Uh, I know your name, but I think everybody else will benefit from hearing it. Um, please, Magnus. Hi, Magnus Warner from the Atlantic Council. Thank you so much to the, to the panelists for, for their remarks, and thanks for CSIS for, for putting this on. Um, so I want to go back to two themes that have already been discussed. One, the rediscovering our history and what we used to do, and, and history as a guide for, for the future, and then also ASW. Um, um, and one thing we discussed and, and, and got into during the Cold War was obviously strategic ASW. Uh, in the North Atlantic, and, and obviously with, with Putin rattling the, uh, the nuclear saber, um, do we also need to think about, a revis uh, about revisiting uh, strategic ASW in, in, the new, in the new security environment? Thanks. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, I see another hand uh, up here in the front, so we'll, we'll take, uh, take a second question, um, and uh, we'll respond to a couple uh, together. Yes, uh, Thomas Ernst, Defense Attaché of Germany. Uh, maybe directed to Mr. Effiestart about C2. Uh, you mentioned uh, that we have to do something about command and control. You were directing your thoughts towards jointness and combinedness and towards the force structure of NATO to be used and national headquarters to be used. 
for me, it's a little bit more of the same where we have made in NATO not the best experiences using force headquarters, using national structures, combining that. There is not much jointness about North Atlantic operations, a lot of combinedness though. Uh, in NATO, we have the maritime expertise in the C2 structure on the component level, that's it. So there is not much uh, on the operational level when you look at JTF headquarters, the principles in Brunson and Naples being deployable, uh, and there is also on the strategic level not much maritime uh, competence. Uh, I do not want to uh, direct too much focus on ACO, but uh, if you look at that, there is of course a lot of a joint competence, but not much maritime. Do you think then the C2 structure should be elevated back to at least the level of a joint force command, uh, or even on the strategic level as it used to be uh, in the 80s and 90s? Thank you. All right, thank you. I'll ask the panelists to respond to those questions, and I think we'll probably come back for a second round. So um, if you have additional questions, please, uh, uh, please be thinking about them. Um, uh, Sven, the last question was directed uh, uh, at you particularly, so perhaps you want to start. Thank you very much for that question. I, I think it's an important one. Uh, Sackland, the arrangement we had with Sackland back in the 80s, it, I think it was uh, was in effect till 2003 when it was disestablished. It was good in many ways, but it also had some difficulties. For example, the division line between Sakur and Sackland ran along the Norwegian coast, and it was very difficult to come from the sea and operate inside Norway, if to take Norway as one case. At that time, we had uh, Sink Eastland in uh, Northwood as the joint command, if you like. And I think perhaps um, in today's situation, it is not realistic to re-establish a strategic command at, uh, with the maritime uh, primary. Uh, so I, I think the, the most realistic um, suggestion would be to build on, on the Northwood Command and perhaps make it joint. And I think it could be made joint by linking it to, for example, the joint headquarters in Norway, where there's a very good situational awareness for the high north. Uh, they are good at training, exercises, contingency planning. You could also link it to the command in, in High Wickham for the air side. You could link it to Denmark because I believe Denmark in the new situation is also a very important bridge between the Atlantic and the Baltic. Um, so I think there are many, many ways of doing that. I also believe you need to link it to the US and perhaps to the Fleet Forces Command uh, in some way for submarine uh, coordination, for example. But if you have such a network, I think you would also be more survivable, more robust in many ways. But there needs to be done quite a lot of work uh, in order to make it function. And you would have to give quite a lot of authority to Markham so that he can draw on the resources that he needs when he needs it. I think it is doable. Heather, Peter, um, also keeping in mind we've had, uh, we have um, uh, Magnus's question on uh, strategic uh, anti-submarine warfare. Uh, I, I think these two are, are really uh, are very linked. That this idea that, that, that jointery, 
is really present in either you know, Brunson or, or Naples, uh, I'm not sure is quite true. Uh, I think that it's a very land-centric, continentalist um, uh, mindset in both the NATO headquarters. I think that exists very much in Brussels. And I don't think we have a, a high-level champion for the Navy or the Maritime who, who gets the problem who articulates it, who expresses the idea of you know, the allocation of resources, who beats the drum, who calls up the chiefs of Navy and, and, and uh, actively um, pushes for it. Uh, and this is sort of a hangover from you know, a decade's focus when NATO was very active in Afghanistan. It was standing up, doing its counterinsurgency, counterterrorism. You know, it was playing a really important role, but that the maritime fell away. And, and you know, the maritime activity was... You know, a little bit of um, anti-piracy, you know, maybe some counter-migration. You know, it just wasn't seen as a, as a, as a really you know, active military line. So I think it does need to be a high-level champion. I think the high-level champion needs to galvanise the conversation about the maritime. I don't think that simply by giving someone a joint title, it's going to inculcate the alliance back with the maritime mindset that it needs to confront the challenge. Um, and this idea that it confronts it, therefore, at the strategic level, uh, which I think, Magnus, you're absolutely right. You know, we need to have a conversation about strategic ASW um, because that lever really works you know, against Moscow. If you want to twig them in some way, strategic ASW really has a huge impact. Um, so it needs to do that, and, and, but it needs to work below that as well. So the operational level and the higher tactical level also need addressing. You know, Marcom in Northwood is 300 people strong. You know, if you look at a divisional headquarters uh, for an army formation, you know, 300 people you know, doesn't get you anywhere. Um, and once you've taken away the support staff, once you've taken away the watchkeepers, the expertise is actually very small. So that needs a huge amount of bolstering. And, I, you know, frankly, I don't care where it goes. You can just get in Rota, Lisbon, um, Norway, Denmark, um, Norfolk. It doesn't matter. It needs bolstering. You know, if we're going to confront this challenge, let's get serious about it. Let's stop worrying about flags to post. And, and let's really get down uh, and dirty with this issue because it's got to be addressed. But at the higher tactical level, we need to do that as well. At the moment, we have five HRFMs, High Readiness Force Maritime Headquarters, which are nationally developed headquarters that should be capable of running a, uh, a large maritime task group. And they do this on an annual rotation. It's a hugely inefficient waste of resources. One of them should be given responsibility for pioneering and um, sponsoring ASW and North Atlantic. Give them a geographic area, bound it. Make that the Brits, make that the French, whoever you want. But it goes back to this idea, you know, in history, what should we be learning? The Commander ASW Strike Forces in, uh, in NATO was a very powerful individual with forces assigned who spearheaded and kept the development of anti-submarine warfare skills at a really high level. And that's something that you know, lots of nations and states need right now, but NATO really needs to focus on. So the C2 is a critical aspect that we need to address in military terms. We're not there right now. There is no sign that we have improved it in any way over the past two decades, and it needs a fundamental rethink. Okay. All right, we'll take a second round of questions. Uh, so I see, I see one hand already uh, here in the middle. Please. Esther McClure, OSD Policy. So this is a great bundle of recommendations I've heard. I've taken lots of notes. I'm really looking forward to reading the book. 
but if it were this easy, we would have already done it. So for each of the three countries, what do you see as being the biggest barriers to moving forward, and how would you advise somebody to tackle them? Great. Thank you. Um, any other questions? No hands at the moment. So we'll turn straight to, to that. If it's, easy, why, if, it, if it's so easy, why hasn't it been done? Same. It's incredible. <laughs> uh, I'm being surprised all the time by seeing so much opposition. Um, not always clearly spoken, but um, kind of in the background, always kind of delaying, modifying, and so on. And I think leadership. And um, I've, I hope that the United States will be strongly a strong advocate for change. Um, in the command structure, as we said, but also in, in changing the way NATO does business. Because if we allow NATO to, to make the, the general plans, political plans, the planning assumptions, right, and leave it to those directly affected to implement it and to do it in practice, I think it could also be much, much faster. So... Um, but it is, it is also true that um, NATO doesn't go anywhere without a strong U.S. leadership uh, and that you make clear priorities for this work to go forward. And I think the countries that we represent would support you very much. <laughs> Heather? Well, I, Esther, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and we got a very similar question actually in Oslo. So this is all fine, but how would you do it? Uh, and I'll, I'll give the same answer. Uh, well, you're looking at three countries that can do something today. Uh, the combined leadership of the UK, US, and Norway today could make this a priority within NATO. I would nominate Admiral Richardson to be that high level uh, champion, maritime champion, as a Submariner himself, who, who understands that there needs to be a maritime mindset. Our three countries have capabilities that can be used, and we can grow this if we want to do it now. We can do this. Sometimes we wait for something to happen that either causes us to, 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 to move off of our inertia. We can do this today. And we have to focus on it. And we're hoping that combined projects, new ideas, we're not going to go back to the Cold War. We don't have the resources, and that's not the most effective way of doing it. But that doesn't mean we do nothing. I think we're seeing an increased operational tempo, and we have an incredible opportunity next year in 2018 with Trident Juncture, the major NATO exercise uh, in this space. We can start now. We have to, we have to prioritize it. Peter, we'll give you the final say. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of the barriers are this uh, a distraction. People get distracted, they move on, they want the next big idea, you know, they've got a, they've got a attention span, there's 15 minutes and, and that's it, they move on. Um, uh, and on that basis, there's a great deal of uncertainty. If they start to invest political capital, political will uh, and resource into this, you know, is it going to be yesterday's news? You know, does it become unsexy very quickly uh, and no one wants to follow through? Uh, and that is... That is simply due to a lack of confidence. And I think it comes back to something uh, that Paul said earlier. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a deep-set lack of confidence about this uh, uh, and a worry through uncertainty that actually the focus is all about 2%. Uh, and it's not about doing something. It's about doing 2%. Uh, 
Uh, and I think there's a real difference there. This absence of leadership, because everyone's looking at the figures, um, is a distraction. Quite simply, we need to move away from studies and committees, get some leadership, get some endorsement on a plan, and just get told to make it happen. Uh, there are a variety of people you can tell to make it happen, but just tell them to make it happen will often do the job. All right. Well, I think that's, a, that's a, an appropriate positive uh, note on which, uh, on which to uh, conclude. Uh, I think we've had a, a really terrific uh, discussion here kicked off um, by Dr. Hamry and uh, Professor Tomnes. And we've talked about uh, you know, prioritization, about the, uh, the importance that the North Atlantic uh, has had throughout NATO's history and the refocus of, of attention on um, the ways in which uh, the North Atlantic is, is essential to transatlantic security. Um, I think, uh, Peter, you made a, a terrific point, which is that from an American perspective, meeting the challenges that we see in the North Atlantic now is not a distraction from the United States' ability uh, to deal with other security challenges. Uh, in many ways, it's essential um, uh, to, to being prepared uh, to deal with those other challenges in other theaters of operation. And it, it underscores one more time uh, the way in which transatlantic security is essential not just to Europe but to the United States. And so I thought that was a, a particularly uh, pertinent, uh, pertinent point. You know, we, we face a situation where we've had an atrophy of our political focus, uh, an atrophy of our contingency planning, and also in the integration of all of these elements of, of defense um, to, together, uh, whether it's exercises, the contingency planning, that these things are mutually re reinforcing and that that's understood at the highest political level. So I think uh, this uh, discussion today has been a, uh, a great uh, reminder of that, and we hope it, is, uh, you know, it has uh, an effect and is inspiring for, uh, for those um, who will be working not just on the defense ministerial that was recently completed, but foreign ministers meeting of NATO coming up next month, um, and the first leaders meeting of this uh, administration at the end of May. So we look forward to remaining in contact with all of you, and thank you so much for coming here uh, today. And I want to thank especially uh, our partners at the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies uh, and at RUSI. Um, uh, for the cooperation, collaboration uh, on this project and on this, uh, on this event here today. So with that, until next time, thank you very much um, and uh, see you soon.